podcast is brought to you by Nova Southeastern University's Fischler School of Education and Human Services. The Fischler School has the largest graduate school of education at an accredited university, serving more than 14,000 students each academic year in some 55 cities across the United States, plus approximately 40 other countries. Hello, this is Dr. Marilyn Gardner with the United States Distance Learning Association and thank you for joining us today for our podcast entitled Student Identity Verification, Best Practices and Practical Experience. And I'm thrilled today to have Michael Jortberg here with me in the studio. And Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Marilyn. Mike is with Axiom, and in case you're not aware, Axiom's headquarters is in Little Rock, Arkansas. And their product development is in Colorado. Mike leads Axiom's efforts in the higher education industry, focusing on how corporate solutions can provide value in a variety of high education markets, such as identity verification. Mike also has a BA degree from Marquette University, and I know we're all very interested in this topic. It's very timely, it's very important. And once again, thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us today, Mike. Thank you. Could you just tell us a little bit about Axiom? Sure. Axiom is a, a large company that is best known for applications of consumer data. And so what we're known for is aggregating and leveraging data about people for two primary purposes. One is marketing. So for those of you who get credit card solicitations or offers from telecommunications or travel hotels, for example, in the mail, oftentimes that data is coming from Axiom. If you'd like to opt out, you can go to the direct marketing organization and opt out and get less junk mail. The other application of consumer data is for what we're using it in this application, which is risk mitigation. So in the financial services world, people want to make sure that people are who they say they are online. The same as in insurance, credit, online retail, and things like that. And so we've now taken this application that has been proven in the financial services sector and are now moving it into the distance learning industry. Why is verifying identity getting so much attention in distance education? Three years ago, we were approached by a client over three years ago now, that an accreditor has been asking an online course provider if they are really sure that the student is who they say they are in an online program. And we were at the time hosting this customer's data center and we said that we do this already, except we do it in a different context of protecting an asset. And the asset that we're protecting in the financial services or insurance world is the private data that's behind someone's user ID password. And so they use a user ID password to gain access to that asset, but banking and other institutions want to have a second layer of protection online. We since learned after that uh, several meetings with that client that the accreditors were, at, at this point, this is late 2005, concerned about the identity verification of distance learning students because the Higher Education Reauthorization Act was due to be passed in December of 2005 with an implementation date of April 2006. 
So there was approximately three months for every distance learning program to comply with this new language uh, that uh, accreditors are going to begin asking a, uh, an institution about their identity programs. In 2005, that bill was cut in half. The funding went through. The policy changes didn't go through. Here comes August 2008, and the Higher Education Reauthorization was passed and was renamed the Higher Education Opportunity Act, or the HEOA. And so federal regulations of higher education are related to Title IV, and there's concern of the growth of the industry, and there's concern that Title IV taxpayer dollars are being used wisely in the, uh, in the higher education online space. So between the, the legislation, there's never been identity on the Internet, and now we're beginning to introduce the concept of proven identity over the Internet, in, not just in distance learning but in many applications. The convergence of those two things has made this uh, an interesting topic. Definitely an interesting topic and a very important topic right now. I know, and as you know, the Internet is based on anonymity, yet we're now relying on it for taxes, credit insurance, uh, retail banking, and online learning. How does online identity actually work? Well, the, the approach that many people take is the use of challenge questions. So I think all of us have experienced setting up a new account. At a, I did this the other day when I had to look at my life insurance policy. These challenge questions are usually shared secrets, meaning you ask me what was my childhood pet's name, which is private information only known to my head and maybe two or three other family members. And I tell that to you and you retain that. And then six months from now, you may ask that of me or they may ask four or five variations of that. And so I think all of us by now, over the last five years ago, that was not done. Today it's done pretty commonly. And so that provides a second layer, people believe, if a password or a user ID password is compromised, people believe that's a second layer that is helpful. The, the difference between a shared secret and what we're doing in distance learning is that a shared secret can be shared with more than one party. And so if I tell you my pet's childhood pet's name was Jojo the bird or whatever it may be, I can also tell somebody else that. And so therefore that somebody else now has access to whatever I was protecting. And so unlike banking where the asset that is being protected, the user also wants to protect the online account, bank account for example, the, in distance learning, Individuals, we have heard, will willingly give up a user ID, a password, and a URL to their Blackboard or Angel or Moodle or whatever learning management system and the course ID in order to have someone else take an exam and therefore earn that grade. And so it's a different angle in that in one situation you're trying to you guard your credentials and protect the asset. In another situation, in distance learning, they give away their credentials in order to gain access to an asset. Very interesting. Actually, some would argue that verifying identity in distance education is a costly intrusion and maybe an invasion of a student's privacy. What's the controversy all about? I think this stems from industries generally do not like to be regulated. The mortgage industry would be an interesting example to look at today. An unregulated industry has gone awry. Is that happening in education? Certainly, I don't believe anybody in the education space thinks that way. But online credit cards, perhaps, they do some things that the government would prefer that they not do. And so we as a society elect officials who then you know, set policy. 
So policy gets set by people who may or may not understand the details of an industry. And so therefore, when policy comes out, there's usually some people who say this is not a good idea. And it depends on the cost and the approach and all sorts of different things. What we're hearing is that the ways that people verify identity today for a distance learning program by forcing somebody to go to a proctored test facility is completely inconsistent with the distance learning model. It says, get in a car and drive, but it's a distance learning program. So the benefits and the reason you enrolled is because you can do it at your own time. And so we heard last week at the Higher Learning Commission in, in Chicago, somebody from Kansas was telling us a story of a single mother who has to work full time and in order to take her exam in an online program has to take paid time off, find childcare, drive to a test facility and come home. And ultimately that was too much for her. And so what we're seeing is that there's a benefit to the students because they no longer have to rely on show up and show a picture ID to some stranger who may or may not be a great proctor as well as faculty feels much more or much more comfortable with the fact that we believe to a reasonable degree of certainty that the person who's taking the assessment is who they say they are. And so we're seeing a lot of benefits, or our customers are seeing benefits of this system that were completely unforeseen three years ago. And three years ago, somebody said our creditors are going to ask us how to do this. And we went, okay, well, we do it in this place. And since people have looked at this with a different eye and they said, look, I can save money because I no longer have to have a test center contract or I don't have to force my students to drive. So we're starting to see benefits come out of this type of system that were completely unforeseen even 12 months ago. What actually is the status of the Higher Education Opportunity Act, the Department of Education, and the accreditor's position on this subject? The timeline is, is as such. In, in August, the bill was passed. The rulemaking process started, and there's three sessions. I think one was March, one in April, and one in May. So one was last week in Washington. And you can follow this on the DOE uh, regulations website. And so they publish documentation about it. And then I believe after that, they publish a statement. That statement goes to public comment. That uh, public comment then is, is reviewed and DOE publishes something, I think it's November. And then the accreditors have to comply sometime, I believe it's June or July of next year is the official due date. But Again, it's an accreditor process, and so it depends on the cycles of the accreditation community. And each accreditor is different. We don't know yet if the regional accreditation communities are going to band together and create one standard. There's a national accreditation organization. I'm not familiar with what the specialized accreditation organizations are going to do, if they're all going to band together and create something similar. The best group to talk to about that is, is CHIA, the Council of Higher Education Authorization, I believe. is. The if a user ID and password are actually sufficient, why not rely on this commonly used method? User ID and password is just ubiquitous. And so the biggest reason that user ID and password doesn't prove who somebody is, is I'm sitting in front of your computer. If I spin the keyboard and I use your computer, now I'm you. So I either hand over the keyboard, which is the same as giving a user ID password, or I email you my password, or I verbally tell you my password. And it's about the simplest thing to, to beat on the planet in terms of IT security. Educause on their website about this system calls it barely computer science because I think the latest work from ITC showed 96% of the distance learning programs use it. So if everyone uses it, then why are we trying to change it? Well, because it doesn't work very well. 
good point. Proctoring is another accepted approach for verifying identity. Does online identity verification replace the face-to-face proctors? Face-to-face proctors do a couple of different things. One is obviously they look at someone's picture ID, so you have to make sure that that proctor knows what a picture ID from a distant state looks like, and that may or may not be the case, and we're assuming people aren't going out and getting fake IDs, which, you know, so that's a piece of it. The second piece is just a proctor's a human observation and to make sure that somebody is not cheating. In a math program, bring in a specialized calculator, bring in a cell phone to take pictures or to text each other or do something. And so online identity verification only replaces that driver's license uh, or that government-issued ID. Can't, you know, ensure somebody's not cheating. Uh, We do have a partner in our efforts called Pupil City or ProctorU, and they've actually invented a... uh, a way to proctor an exam over the internet using a webcam and uh, it's pretty it's a pretty interesting piece of technology because what it does is it creates a chat room basically for someone to take an exam and it's an outsourced model where they have a human observing somebody taking an assessment over a webcam it's a little bit different than some of the others that are on the market and that it's not it's not a recorded session And so from a privacy standpoint, there's no stored video of somebody taking an assessment that someone might bump into accidentally or go post on YouTube or whatever. So it's never recorded. Who are some of the early adopters of this technology and what actually has been their experience? Our first customer was National American University in Rapid City. They're one of the very first accredited online programs in the North Central. And they ran a number of uh, students through both in 08 as well as in 09 and continue to plan to expand the use of the system. And they've been very happy with it. There's been no student issues whatsoever. You know, we're managing what we call false positives now, which is to fine-tune the challenge question methodology to make sure that you're not accidentally asking the wrong questions. Another user was Casper College in Casper, Wyoming. I think in one week back in October, they put about 200 students through. Didn't tell the students. They, they just turned it on because this is a younger population. They were very happy with it. We got no help desk calls no real big student feedback or complaints whatsoever and faculty were very happy with the results. I was just this morning at Missouri Baptist. We're in St. Louis for this conference and they're going to deploy it shortly here with Blackboard. We're also turning on Sullivan University in Louisville and then in tomorrow's session uh, representative from University of Illinois program are going to talk about their plans. How exciting to be on the ground floor of such an important industry for universities. I know there are a lot of people in the audience who would probably like more information and would like to possibly ask you a few further questions. Could you share some contact information? Sure. You can reach me at, my phone number is 630-944-0379, or you can go to axiom.com slash student identity. We also have a few announcements coming out shortly about Angel as well as about Blackboard. And today is near the end of April, so if this podcast lives on for you know three or four months, there will be a, a few more announcements coming out. We'll be at Blackboard World, as well as the Angel Conference in the future, as well as WCET in November, Educause, and a few other conferences here and there throughout the year. Michael, thank you very much. When Mike mentioned April, we're actually in April 2009 because this will be archived 
and who knows when people will be listening to this podcast but thank you once again my name is dr marilyn gardner and if you're interested in learning more about the united states distance learning association you can find us at www.usdla.org thank you and have a great day this podcast is brought to you by nova southeastern university's fischler school of education and human services The Fischler School has the largest graduate school of education at an accredited university, serving more than 14,000 students each academic year in some 55 cities across the United States, plus approximately 40 other countries. The Fischler School of Education and Human Services is dedicated to the enhancement and continuing support of teachers, administrators, trainers, and others working in related helping professions throughout the world.